On February 15, 1894, an explosion occurred in Greenwich Park near the Royal Observatory. That, in a roundabout way, may tell us a lot about our struggle to understand what it means to live in energy modernity. This is the story, or, or rather, this is the seed for what would become the story of Joseph Conrad's 1907 novel, The Secret Agent. There's a man who leads a life of danger Everyone he meets, he stays a stranger. With every move he makes, another chance he takes. Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow. Secret On that fateful day in 1894, Marshal Borden, a young man somewhat mysteriously and tenuously linked to the anarchist community, seems to have tripped while carrying a small bomb and died soon after of the injuries he sustained. Newspapers went wild with speculation. And in no time at all, the event took on the sensational title of The Greenwich Outrage. Though, as outrages go, it was much more in the sound and fury signifying nothing variety. Though pamphlets and fictional accounts would continue for some time after the event, the only certainty that seemed to emerge from it at all was that no one was particularly certain what it had been about. No clear motive or group emerged, and it was this particular flavor of rampant media hyperbole that Conrad seemed most interested in mining for material when he set out 13 years later to write his, as the book's subtitle reiterates, simple tale. In other words, he set out to write a book about nothing. Well, or about the social situation that is so certain of a something, in fact, so many different voices being so certain of a something, that the nothingness of it becomes stunning in its depth. A kind of present absence that maybe could lead a reader to understand some of the deeper structuring frameworks of the modern world at play beneath the surface. And in a strange way, and when we are talking about Joseph Conrad, we are generally talking about strange ways. The novel can tell us a lot about how the uncanny entanglement of crime, sensation, and our inability to come to terms with global infrastructures that happen at enormous scales of space and time may be key to accessing a deep understanding of energy modernity. When we think about energy today, perhaps our first thought is the ubiquitous infrastructures of the electric grid. Or maybe our vehicle and drilling intensive petroculture. These modes of intensive energy extraction and consumption saturate our world. But at the turn of the century, another energy temporality was front and center in the public imagination. Dynamite fiction. When I was first working on dynamite fiction, it was when I was working on my first book, which was about crime fiction. And so I was really interested in the emergence of this subgenre about political crime and especially about dynamite outrages, these kind of like explosive political crimes. So sometimes dynamite novels are more about assassination, like Henry James's Princess Cosima but a lot of times they have these kind of spectacular explosions. This is Dr. Elizabeth Carolyn Miller. She is a professor at UC Davis. She's the author of Framed, The New Woman Criminal in British Culture at the Fin de Siècle, also Slow Print, Literary Radicalism and Late Victorian Print Culture, and most recently, 
Extraction Ecologies, and the Literature of the Long Exhaustion. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a dynamite novel, Joseph Conrad, Henry James, and then there was also a lot of popular fiction. But that shows that, you know, there were writers kind of the higher and lower and middle ranges of culture, you know, working working in this genre. So I was interested initially as a kind of a genre about political crime. But then more recently, going back to this novel, I started thinking about the developments happening in mining in, in you know, the, there were all these new kind of explosives that emerged around the 1860s and 1870s. And I had never made this connection before, but it made me start to wonder if that was part of what led to dynamite fiction was just the more frequent use of explosives in mining. I mean, you know, they'd been using gunpowder in mining for years, um, but there's like TNT is invented in like the 1860s, um, I believe. And there, and there's other explosives that come out like in the 1870s and dynamite fiction is kind of like an 1880s, 1890s genre. Joseph Conrad's novel is actually a, a bit late, although, of course, it's set in the 1880s. What Conrad explores in the novel, that in many ways arrived after the heyday of the dynamite fiction genre, is the displacement of the explosive center of, di of dynamite from the extractive and political realms into the domestic sphere. Verlach's decision to make Stevie carry the fateful bomb is connected to his cosmic laziness rather than to political fanaticism. And Winnie's realization of what has happened and subsequent murder of Verloc happens in the context of a young woman who had accepted a marriage for financial security in the hopes of protecting her mother and brother, only to find that contract doing precisely the opposite. It's worth taking a moment to review Dynamite's historical moment. Dynamite is patented in 1867. The way we can date movies by the arrival of cell phones or the pixelation of computer screens, we might also think about dynamite as something new, strange, both exciting to the vision of empire blasting its way through the mountains in the name of civilization, and increasingly terrifying as a tool of unpredictable political radicals intent on disrupting the social order. In attaching his story of domestic tragedy to an explosive one, one has to wonder if Conrad has, in part, made available the violence of industrial modernity to an urban domestic setting far removed from the enormous project of fossil fuel extraction that powered urban infrastructure. It's interesting to think about a book like um, Rob Nixon's Slow Violence, which talks about how ecological violence is so antithetical to a lot of the ways we've been trained to think about violence in terms of the spectacular and you know the sudden and the immediate impact of violence as opposed to the kind of like durational damage that's more common with environmental violence right and and i think i think secret agent although it's you know maybe it's a bit of a stretch to say that the novel is about environmental violence but it's or environmental crime or environmental damage but certainly really interested in that question of like the spectacular and the moment and and it's really interested in undoing the whole concept of crime. I mean, one of the parts of the book that I think is so fascinating is when it's, you know, give it, sort of giving us the, the psychology of Inspector Heat and, you know, the police inspector, the detective. And it talks about how he can understand, you know, thieves. He can understand burglars. He can understand so many kinds of criminals because they're, basically the same as the police, right? That they, that they, they're all 
just playing their parts in this drama that they kind of like all understand. And so it makes sense to him and it's logical to him. And he doesn't like the anarchist. He's particularly uncomfortable professor um, because it doesn't fit into this system, right? It doesn't fit into the, the way he conceives of crime. And um, I think partially, you know, that I, don't, I think there is a connection there between the way that the, the book is imagining um, you know, the, the, it's, it's asked us to, to rethink the nature of violence, a, a long temporal, a, a kind of like temporal trajectory, for example, but then it's also really undoing um, the category of crime. So, so there's some interesting connections there, I think, with the way that we might theorize ecological violence. The secret agent has often been critically engaged in relation to crime and terrorism but its various nonsensical agents are recognizably set against a complex web of the energy regimes of its day. One Conrad was experiencing first in his career shift from working on wind-powered ships to steam-powered ones, and then domestically in a social scene moving towards electrification. While many developers were working on electric light, Edison patented his electric bulb in 1879, and that stands as a kind of benchmark in the turn towards mass electrifying. By the 1930s, new homes were being built with electric lighting. In the novel, set in 1888, the characters are still using gas lamps, yet another technology born specifically out of global energy technologies. As the Davy lamp, a form of closed gas lamp, had been engineered to keep miners safe, from their lights inadvertently sparking the explosive mixture of gases and mines called fire damp. Given the novel's many scenes of energy use, from the explosive to the domestic, can the novel be read as engaging with the broad shifts in the complex interplay of ecology and technology? I was really, I started to pay a lot more attention to the lighting and to all the kind of interplay between surface and depth in the book, which is really interesting. I mean, you know, Verloc is this super lazy character, right? That's like his definitive trait. But in a way, he's like a parodic version of a miner because he has to kind of like descend into the underbelly of London, you know, to do his work and then and then come back out. And, you know, he he works odd hours and, you know, sleeps late because he's he's out late working and so forth, and which is sort of like a mirror of the shift system and mines at this time. And um, he's kind of like untethered with the daily rhythms of the sun, although London itself is so dark and grimy. Um, there's one part where Comrade says that the London sun looked bloodshot. Um, and now having lived through so many wildfires in California, I'm, <laughs> oh, it's because of the smoke in the air, because the sun, you know, looks red when we have um, fire smoke. So, but, but so, so anyway, so it's in this kind of like grimy atmosphere that I think, you know, like it's possible to say is analogous to a kind of um, like underground and surface type dynamic that you might have in a mining story. Um, oh, and then also there's Winnie who we're told several times is someone who doesn't like to look under the surface of things. So um, so there's that, but, but anyway, um, but the gas lamps, there's so many gas lamps all over the novel and they're, they're providing lighting in interiors and exteriors. And so like the, I think the first one that Burlock confronts is when he goes to the embassy, you know, and they 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 have the passage in the embassy lit up by gas lamps. 
but there's a lot of gas lamps outside in, in London too. And the, the scene that really struck me is that really long scene of Verloc and Winnie at home the night after Stevie dies, you know, the scene that culminates with Winnie killing Verloc eventually. But when that scene begins, Winnie, um, she it starts with her lighting the gas. She hears Verloc come in and so she lights the gas and it talks about how, you know, one of the gas lamps is kind of broken. So it makes this like weird purring sound and so forth. And then, you know, periodically throughout that really long scene in the novel, we keep being reminded of the gas lamps. Anyway, so eventually, as you know, she kills Burlock. Then she hooks up with Ossipon outside and she makes him go back in to turn the lamps off and because she realizes that she's left them on in the house. And so when he goes back in, that's when he sees Verloc is dead and he realizes like, oh, when he killed him, which he hadn't realized before. Um, so the, the lamps actually play like a really important role in that scene, um, you know, both in terms of kind of like revelation, like literally Asapan sees Verloc there because he has to go in to turn off the lights, but also there's some kind of um, temporal work that's being done by the gas lamps too, because, you know, as I said, right when the scene starts, when he hears Verloc and turns the lamp on, and then that chapter sort of gets closed when Asapan goes in to turn the lights off. And the scene is kind of like punctuated with reminders of the gas lamp again. So, um, you know, this, this, it's kind of like what you were saying earlier about explosives, a sense of like a new technology, you know, that the fiction is doing the work of like integrating in, into life partially through, you know, its role in the narrative. But it is also this just kind of reminder of how dark London is because of all the soot outside, how the need for artificial lighting, you know, the extent to which Verloc lives this like nighttime life that's so untethered from the sun and requires this external lighting, but also the way that the kind of like rhythm of their lives is dictated by the lamps in certain ways, right? That that new kinds of lighting make new kinds of hours and schedules possible and, and so forth. So anyway, that, those were some of the things I was thinking about with the gas lamps. Do we engage with the situation of being surrounded by energy, but its atmospheric effects and echoes of its violent extraction by implicating its workings into the concept of a crime? Dynamite is a mass concentration of energy into a detonation that is itself a link in the chain of extraction that creates the circumstance of mass energy consumption. So in dynamite fiction, can we become aware of the scale and damage of energy modernity? Are we in essence living our lives in an active crime scene? I want to get... Yeah, so I, I want to get you and your your uh, uh, query me like one type of responsibility, and this is my way into that question: response to the environment in the past, which is, you know, there's all this discussion of like what is the genre that's adequate to the climate crisis. You know, from the top goes forward, it's like this huge topic, and 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 everybody kind of usually agrees that tragedy is is this kind of like vacuous term, and the question that I've been trying to figure out in my own work is like why is it inadequate. Dr. Devin Griffiths, professor at University of Southern California and author of The Age of Analogy, Science and Literature Between the Darwins. And I think in part it's inadequate because the resolution of tragedy is that the responsibility is held, is, is ultimately accrues the individual, right? So it's not that they've committed necessarily a, a legal crime, although perhaps, but like Oedipus is like the classic example. Oedipus um, killing his father is not a, a crime against the law because his father provokes the violence, right? Like it's not, 
it's not a crime in that sense, but the responsibility for what he does is directly his. And there's a weird way in which I think the logic of um, tragedy is about taking the wider um, questions of guilt or responsibility and then scapegoating an individual. And so the catharsis is about, thank God we kind of purged the problem to some degree because we, we see it, so we kind of sacrificed at least imaginably an individual as a figure for accruing it. Even though it seems like what the tragedies are raising always is, is wider systemic questions, you know? So then the question would be like, you know, what's the what's the version of confronting the systemic and the kind of overall like movement of recognition and accountability and tragedy that doesn't like land on an individual, you know, and so absolve all the others, you know, in, in, that are in uneven ways like engaged. And to me, that seems like a big environmental question because that I think is, you know, um, the question of how we narrate the arc of responsibility to the environment, you know, collectively and, and through individuals. The secret agent poses this difficulty over and again throughout the text. The precise target of its satire is its many characters' attempts to center an ideological, pseudoscientific, pragmatic, or even mystical framework for making sense of the world. But over and again, these attempts fall well short of offering a coherent understanding of the world the characters find themselves inhabiting. The text seems to ask the question of whether narrative can ever represent something as large as an energy infrastructure or its climatic effects. I think like as a, as a, as a teacher or a writer, uh, for some anyway, like maybe the task is less to, to um, at least for me, the task is less to hold others responsible or figure out like what uh, point out where the responsibility lies then the work the question of responsibility through me and what what am I responsible for and as a way into and how do how does literature and history and archives help me figure out that question so and, and one way to put that would be I'm playing a lot with the word responsibility and like responsibility like the, the the term like etymologically comes from um, law and 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 uh, uh, structure of authority and who can be held responsible, responsible for a thing, but it, it literally means like respond back, like speak back. Oh yeah. So, that makes sense. And so like, but so, but to loosen it a little bit from its history to say like responsibility is also response ability, like ability to respond. And so how do you respond to your understanding, your evolving understanding of the history you're implicated in? how through learning how to respond to it does the history in turn respond to you and and how you are changing as part of that process and so i'm trying to feel like how do you it's not about holding somebody responsible for something it's like how do you start to respond to history what it's telling you and by responding to it by talking back by speaking back to it how does it in turn share more with you and i think that um the literature and the archive can do that for you too because they model these uh, moments of of communication uh, around implication and and knowledge and discovery and everything else, you know. So, responsibly is such a loaded term, but it could be a term for a, a much for conversation, like in relationality too. And that's kind of the way that like I'm trying to figure out how to talk about it. Ultimately, perhaps what we can take from the novel is that the modern subject continuously finds nearly every ideological project inadequate to rendering a verdict on the material substructures of the modern world, and in doing so is left with narrative forms that turn responsibility for the world back on the subject themselves. 
I want to say a profound thank you to Dr. Elizabeth Carolyn Miller and Dr. Devin Griffiths for volunteering their expertise, and to Thomas Davis for curating this collection for modernism and modernity.